Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere playing at luckylandslots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18+. Plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Here we go. Welcome to an HBC special report. I'm John Adams along with Chris Kendall. Today's special report is titled The Con Tiki Spiracy. Mr. Kendall, how are you doing today, sir? I'm doing well. It's uh, 87 degrees and it's quite humid, but uh, other than that, it's. Uh, yeah, it's uh, summer, and I guess getting into summer, or not summer yet, but getting hot. And, uh, yeah. 87 and humid, that kind of sounds like island weather. And uh, right. since we're, we're going to be talking about the islands today, we're going to go into tiki pop culture. And this was not something that I was really planning on doing an HBC special report on, but as I was going through some of the information associated with uh, the research into Southern California that we've been doing, um, I came across something uh, looking into architecture, and it was something that was kind of hard to ignore, um, and we'll get into that and flesh that out, but I want to start out this special report by reading an article to kind of kick us off, and this was from uh, Wired Magazine. Um, Last, uh, I'm sorry, two years ago now, it's from July 16th, 2014, by Joseph Flattery. It's called The Bizarre Rise and Fall of the Tiki Bar. And for those of you who don't know what tiki culture was, you're going to find out right now. In the 1950s and 60s, an epidemic of island fever swept the United States. Tiki-themed structures spread like jungle vines, taking the form of garden-style apartments in Redondo Beach, California, and Polynesia-inspired motor lodges in Lower Marion, Pennsylvania. Amway, the quintessential Midwestern enterprise, sold jade green tiki soaps in the shape of moi. Barely a decade after the Bataan Death March, Americans couldn't get enough rattan furniture for their living rooms, basement, bars, and backyards. For some rum-soaked reason, millions of American adults wanted their lives to feel like a never-ending trip to the Rainforest Cafe. Tiki Pop, American Conjures Up Its Own Polynesian Paradise, is a superb new book by Sven Kirsten, published by Tashin, that helps explain how America became obsessed with the idea of living on a beach where the skies were always sunny, women were always beautiful, and drinks were always strong. Ancestor worship was the dominant form of religion in the Pacific Islands, and Tiki was the half-man, half-god figure that filled the role of the first man, like the biblical Adam. Eventually, all carved religious totems came to be called Tikis. As an American design motif, Tiki stretched beyond wooden and stone figures to include anything that was vaguely Polynesian, nautical, and handcrafted. This included native crafts like woven palm fronds and block-printed tapa cloth, as well as seafaring bric-a-brac like scavenged, scavenged ship wheels, fiber, or I'm sorry, glass fishing floats, and scrimshaw. 
As Western artists started playing with these materials, they added influences from American animation and architectural styles. Despite a, a desire to get back to nature, proprietors of tiki bars would often employ emerging tech like stroboscopic lamps to simulate lightning and summon far rainstorms by splattering windows with water to create a 3D sinew surround environment, which supposedly inspired Walt Disney during his design of Adventureland. One of the more interesting aspects of the tiki phenomena was how it developed alongside the more austere school of mid-century modernism. While the Ameses were experimenting with materials of the future, Kirsten believes that tiki designers were trying to recreate Eden. As more and more people spent their days in soaring glass and steel skyscrapers, the tiki lifestyle allowed people to enjoy a bit of paradise on their patios. How tiki came to be. Despite ending up as a kitschy architectural footnote, the tiki aesthetic has surprisingly has a surprisingly cosmopolitan and intellectual uh, provenance. Fascination with all things Pacific began when English explorer Captain James Cook made contact with islanders in the South Sea starting in 1769. His tales of exotic locales and societies reinforced Swiss philosopher Jean-Jacques Rousseau's thesis that humanity's perfect state was living in balance with nature. These naval accounts inspired writers like Herman Melville and Jack London to hop ships bound for Oceania and precipitated Galgan's sojourns into Tahiti. The books and paintings produced by these vagabonds fed Hollywood, which had started cranking out island-focused features, and by the 1920s, a quarter of recorded music sales were Polynesian melodies. The United States' involvement in Pacific theater of World War II exposed hundreds of thousands of young men to Asian cultures, and these vets shared their stories like James A. Michener's Tale of the South Tales of the South Pacific, which won a Pulitzer Prize in 1945 and became the musical South Pacific in 1949. The Metropolitan Museum of Art mounted a massive South Seas show in 1945, giving the artifacts cultural cachet and the ratification of Hawaii's statehood in 1959 put a patriotic gloss on this emerging style. Okay. Uh, by the mid-60s, the horrors of Vietnam made the prospect of remote beach, remote beaches less, um, less idealized. A growing sensitivity to poor treatment of indigenous people made by many uncomfortable with the idea of drinking from a glass shaped like a native girl. And by the time a cursed tiki caused Greg Brady to take a spill on a surfboard in 1972, the fad was finished. The tiki spirit lives on in backyards and backwaters, but tiki pop and a companion exhibit at the Musée de Croix Branly in Paris present it as it existed when rum flowed freely and political correctness was a punchline. Now, when you get into what tiki culture was, it was very mainstream. It was something as mainstream as women wearing high-heeled shoes. Um, and the interesting part about that is, uh, whereas you might associate it as something that popped up after 
World War II and proliferated into the early 70s and then stopped there, it's actually an extension of something uh, that they mentioned there from the tales of the South Sea uh, and the myths of the islands from uh, the late 18th century on down through the 19th century into the 20th century where it takes on the primitive modernism. Now, this is very interesting in light of, I, I recommend a book on my reading list called Only Yesterday by Frederick Lewis. And Frederick Lewis goes over how uh, how disposable the culture of America is and how it was like that in the 1920s and how by the 1930s when he was writing his book, people had forgotten most of the stuff that he was talking about from just a decade earlier. So I you know, as I'm going through this information, and I was already familiar with tiki culture, um, I know Chris is familiar with tiki culture as well, I just found it very strange that a fad would last almost 200 years because of how fleeting everything is in our society. But there is a fascination with the islands. And so you have in the late 18th century, um, um, the U.S., Britain and France um, setting up trade routes throughout the multiple archipelagos of islands in the South Seas and in the Pacific. And the given story is, is that when they came into these uh, islands, that they were fascinated by what they saw because um, the Christian, you know, the Protestant doctrine of man's expulsion from paradise uh, kind of ingrained in Western Europe a sense of civilization uh, like separation from the true condition of of man of uh, of uh, being separated from the way things were back in the garden and i could I could see a connection there because you know still today in this country, whether you're a conservative or a liberal. You want to get back to something. And so it's not unheard of to think of uh, people wanting to get back to the garden. Whereas, you know, the conservatives, just for an example, conservatives want to get back to the 1950s. Well, see, back then they wanted to take it back all the way to the Garden of Eden. Um, so when they came upon these island cultures, uh, they were all, they were, you know, they were confused as well because. Um, they were like, wow, I mean, how is this even possible that, that, this, that these people lasted this long without civilization? They don't even have bricks or stones. They don't have running water. Uh, you know, they don't have a school system. Like, how is this even possible that these, uh, that these people have survived? Right? Because mm -hmm. civilization's great and wonderful. It's the peak of everything. And so... You know, uh, there's this uh, wonder and amazement that these people have survived off, you know, fish and coconuts and pineapple and walking around topless and, and loincloths or whatever. And and so there's a fascination with the culture, but at the same time, there's this urge to civilize them and give them things and to uh, colonize the area as well, to take it over. Now, I don't totally believe the liberal academia nonsense of that, 
you know, when the white man came, he raped all the women and he killed all the men. Um, not that that didn't happen. I don't know. I wasn't there. But it seems if you want to establish trade routes and you want, you know, the people who are familiar with the islands to tell you where all the resources are, you probably don't want to come in to do that. So especially if you want to set up a commercial system and uh, civilization, which is what happened. Um, so much so that by the time um, the 1950s came around when, you know, Charlton Heston's making them. Uh, the movie Diamond uh, Head. Uh, he's a plantation owner in the Hawaiian Islands, a sugarcane plantation owner. He's a white guy, and they call him King. Okay. So, at the same time that you know, this is the bizarre thing about about uh, cultures is when they get taken over, you're fascinated by the. You're fascinated by the culture itself, but you want to change it. You want to you want to civilize it as well. It's strange. At the same time, a little bit later on, you'll see that modernism adopts something called mod, uh, modern primitivism, and this idea that oh, we need to get back. You know, so at the at the same time that they're telling these islanders that they need to become civilized. They're telling the people in the West, like, oh, wouldn't it be great to get back to this old way of life? And not that that was actually going to happen, but see, this is what it did. And it did this big time here in America, especially. And um, this is something that we'll touch on again when we talk about uh, CIA chefs and food and all this type of stuff is it's the appeal of the exotic. And what the appeal of the exotic does is it makes you feel mundane and normal in your life. And it makes you desire something else. Well, if you've got something to sell, well, that's great. Because that means the people who feel mundane and quote-unquote normal are going to want to buy something or do something exotic that you have to sell. Okay, so that's so. Like I said, there's this fascination that runs down all the way through. Now, this is a very interesting thing that I found out that I was unaware of. Is and and you might think this is uh, interesting, Chris, that when these guys rolled up into these islands, you know, of course the Cook Islands there off the coast of New Zealand is named for Captain Cook. Um, uh, you know, and all, all of the different areas, Hawaii, of course, you know, uh, for a long time was dominated by the U.S. What you have is anthropologists and sociologists on board these boats, even before they called those guys that. It's, it's just like in the late 1700s. When they're going into these areas, they have men of science on board whose job it was to study the culture and study what these people do, what they eat, study everything. Well, this this is not so unheard of, I'm sure. Like, it's not surprising. But that's an interesting thing to take along with you if you're going to, you know, start trade routes, I guess, to the just average person kind of reading through it. It's like, well, why would you take anthropologists along? Well, because, as we've talked about before... That's what intelligence agencies are, right? 
when they when they go into these areas, they want to learn everything about the area that they're going into commercialize and set and, and civilize. So even as far back as the 1790s, they took these type of people with them when they were coming into uh, areas that they were exploring. But it's also interesting too that when these tales, these myths, these South Sea tales and books that were allegedly written uh, by Captain Cook and the like. Um, you know, they were heavily detailed. So, you know, it's not like the author probably, I'm going to guess directly wasn't deaf, wasn't a uh, captain cook. And he had all of the information that was taken in from those uh, adventures to go along with it. And this was fascinating, not only to the general public, but also to uh, the wealthy, the aristocrats. Now they wanted to go see what this Island paradise was all, all about. And, um, there was all sorts of uh, interest generated in in this through these through these uh, tales and myths, and so much so that by the mid 1800s, you have this turned into a full fledged genre of writing. And if you know anything about a genre, it means you don't necessarily have to be involved with it directly to be able to write about it. So you know, Chris can write a book about murder mystery and not be a murderer. Um, somebody could write a children's book and not be a child or involved with children at all. It's just a genre. And so by the time that came up, uh, people who weren't even going on boat trips or having anything to do with the islands at all were writing uh, South Sea tales as the backdrop for you know romance or adventure. Um, of course, uh, you get into... And the point I'm making with all this is this is being proliferated through Western culture in Britain, in France, in America. Uh, you have this island fascination that's being built up. And it's as these islands are being explored, Samoa, Tahiti, uh, the you know, lots of islands in the Pacific. A little bit later on, you have the Philippines and things like this. And... By the late 1800s, it becomes very popular in America, these particular types of tales, with one man named Robert Louis Stevenson. And Robert Louis Stevenson well, was famous for his book Treasure Island and uh, Kid Kidnapped. Of course, Daniel Defoe wrote Robinson Crusoe. And a lot of these things have to do with uh, uh, these stories, the Robert Louis Stevenson not only wrote Treasure Island Kidnapped, but he wrote a lot of South Sea adventure tales. Now, he was one guy who actually went out and went to Hawaii, went and lived in Samoa. So he had kind of the background and the idea that he was going to, you know, do that. And actually did have a desire to get away from civilization, as he said. Uh, the same thing with Paul Gauguin. Uh, the artist um, who was not popular in his own time, um, but became popular through the writings of W. Somerset Maugham, who wrote a book called The Moon and Sixpence. And this is a little bit later on. This is in the 20th century, but Gauguin was there in the 19th century. And this is interesting because if you know anything about W. Somerset Maugham, 
uh, he's famous for his uh, book of human bondage, which I haven't read, but it's on the bookshelf somewhere. And another book he wrote called The Secret Agent. Well, that's because W. Somerset Mom was British intelligence. And he wrote The Moon and Sixpence, which was, you know, expanding on this Galgan, um, these tales of uh, Tahiti. And he turned him into this cultural icon. And I just thought that was interesting, considering this guy was British intelligence. And here he is, a culture creator, a culture proliferator of this island idea. Of course, Herman Melville wrote Moby Dick and Billy Budd, but he also wrote a trilogy of uh, island stories called Taipei and Umu and Marty. Um, Jack London in the 1900s, um, of course, uh, kept the, the South Sea Tales going, Mark Twain. These were all people who it had to do with ships and sailing on the ocean and going to different places. And it kept this idea alive, this fascination with the exotic. And once you get up into um, the 1900s, uh, people start traveling uh, to Hawaii they can, you know, people are starting to be able to afford going and traveling to uh, this uh, easy-to-get-to exotic paradise. And in the 1920s, uh, you have the Hawaiian music craze in America start to kick off, um, becoming a full-fledged entertainment category by the 1940s. Um, of course, if you look at jazz music from the 1920s. You have the ukulele um, coming into prominence there. And um, this is very interesting, but uh, steel guitar was actually a popular thing for kids to learn, to take steel guitar classes and Hawaiian music. Um, it was a populist fad born out of uh, America's love for Hawaii and the desire for uh, exotic experiences um, they saw, you know, um, people saw Polynesian lifestyle as a way to add excitement to their normal life. Um, like I was saying before, movies had Polynesian South Sea uh, tropical stories from the very beginning of movies. And Southern California popularized Polynesian style, um, especially uh, with the movie Mutiny on the Bounty. Now, this is where you start to see an interesting thing in culture where, where like, businesses, you know, restaurants um, start taking on uh, motifs of, of a Polynesian and South Sea culture. Um, there was actually bars that were based off of the Mutiny on the Bounty theme. The main character, his name was Christian. And, you know, they have a bar called Christian's Hut out out here in Newport Beach. Um, a lot of restaurants had hurricane themes and all, all sorts of things. And see, Walt Disney saw a lot of these themed restaurants and got a lot of his ideas for Adventureland and uh, uh, the Jungle Cruise. And the, there's actually a room 
uh, at Disneyland called the Tiki Room. And and so, once again, you have escapism entering into it. It's the main focus to get away from concrete, steel, bamboo, and palms. Replace the the concrete and steel. And so, where am I going with all this? Well, now this is a backdrop, and primarily here in America, by the time you get up into the 20th century, it's focused around Hawaii. Hawaiian shirts are very popular, grass skirts, like I said, the music, that type of thing. Like I said, it's in, it's embedded into the culture through, you know, restaurant motifs and um, bamboo, bamboo furniture, this type of stuff. And so there is, an, there is a big love for Hawaii. In fact, the hula girl was a huge iconic figure leading up to World War II. It was, it, was, it was part of American culture. It was in paintings. It was, you know, it was, it was everywhere. And what it was was the symbol of, you know, it was the symbol of this paradise on Earth. And so America had a love affair with Hawaii. Well, it's very interesting that the, that one of the, that the place that America would get attacked to bring them into World War II would be Hawaii. And, and this is something that's not talked about when discussing Pearl Harbor, just even in the main line uh, sense of it, is how traumatic of an experience that was for people to have Hawaii attacked. And how, uh, how people were so upset by this because of the island paradise that Hawaii represented to the rest of America. It's also interesting to note that after Hawaii was attacked, it immediately was occupied by the U.S. and put down, put on martial law lockdown to where they had barbed wire on the beaches and American troops occupied it. So basically from the time of World of the entrance into World War II, there was a full-blown occupation by the U.S. It gave them the impetus to invade Hawaii, whereas before Hawaii was a U.S.-occupied territory but wasn't necessarily owned by the U.S. And, you know, obviously World War II gave, gave it the kind of go-ahead to incorporate it into statehood as well. It's a very interesting thing, and there are some things around online uh, where people talk about how Hawaii is not really a state. It's really a sovereign entity and the U S took it over. And that's very uh, interesting stuff, but I'm not going to get into that here. What I'm just going to keep talking about and then ask Chris, what he thinks of all this here is how this was cultural wallpaper all the way up to the time of world war two. And then we'll talk about the later half in a minute, but um, all the way up to world war two, as these countries were dominating these particular islands and going into them and setting them up and civilizing them, there was the idea to civilize them, but at the same time to pacify the public as it's going on. They kept the interest going on. It was generated, like I said, culture, uh, Western culture in general uh, consumes and discards things so fast. It's just so strange that this culture uh, proliferated that long, 
you know, from the late 1700s on up into 1941, culminating in the Pearl Harbor attack, causing people to get upset and to get involved with a war that a lot of people were actually against before the uh, Pearl Harbor attack. They were not in favor of going to war until this Pearl Harbor attack, which was on their beloved Hawaii. What do you think about what I've said there, Chris? Well, yeah, I think that's um, an interesting line of uh, inquiry there, taking those developments and turning them into something that, uh, you know, lends lends credence to the idea that, uh, you know, we're under some kind of long-term planning whenever you see something like, well, it now you could say, well, that was kind of a, just a spontaneous uh, emergence of the interest in, um, you know, Polynesian culture or island culture. Uh, on the other hand, if you look at it the other way, it, 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 it I see it as a, and I'm sure, you know, you, you would agree with this assessment that there are uh, a preparatory phase that has to be gone through before you are, or America or what have you enters into a, a, a era of pretty wide sweeping cultural change, which would be, um, you know, surrounding world war two, uh, obviously that would be, uh, rep- representative of a huge cultural shift. um, just by the fact that, you know, we're so heavily involved in this uh, so-called war effort. But then you have to look at those series of developments and think, well, what would be the big deal if uh, Hawaii is attacked? And then people in the United States have no kind of attachment to Hawaii, you know, like, well, you know, it's just some base somewhere remote. And then, you know, if people don't really know or are familiar with or have this uh, love affair with all things, you know, Polynesian and, and uh, I- island culture and all that, they don't have much of an investment into uh, Hawaii. And or, or probably not much at all. It would just be another uh, event that would be kind of maybe shrugged off and not and not elicit a lot of response. But since you know there's all this um, uh, you know investment into that culture and those ideas, it really um, uh, got people worked up, you know, over over something that was uh, pretty long in preparation leading up to it. And it all had to do with the, uh, yeah, the Tiki culture and um, especially around that area where we've talked about and ties in, we talked about before the uh, aerospace industry. Um, I mean, there here's short paragraph here out of the Wikipedia entry about uh, aviation in Hawaii. So the Hawaiian Islands are home to scientific research into astronomy, robotics, and aerospace technology. 
Hawaii is home to some of the world's largest telescopes and the observatory located near the summit of Mauna Kea, the Big Island. Uh, the comp the composition of the volcanic sand in the mountains of Hawaii is nearly the same chemical composition as the moon. Uh, this allows for lunar missions to be tested on the Earth first before leaving the atmosphere. Hawaii is also home to the U.S. astronaut Ellison Onizuka and the astronaut Ellison S. Onizuka Space Center. Uh, at Amy Loa is a museum dedicated to exploring and developing the link between Polynesian explorers and space exploration. NASA has announced a lunar research park in uh, Hilo, or Hilo. Uh, the University of Hawaii has provided volunteers for these missions in the past through Pisces, whatever that ac acronym is for. Uh, the University of Hawaii has held student design competitions for models for space colonization. And um, so we talked about how Southern California is sort of this mecca of culture. And the uh, tiki culture was, of course, uh, sort of developed there. Like a lot of like a lot of stuff we've talked about before, where it it kind of gets its foothold and gets entrenched into the culture, kind of spreads out from California into the wider uh, culture at large, you know. And then, uh, so you know, being sort of um, a holdout for, or 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 a uh, yeah, a, a cultural center there. Yeah, it would make sense that uh, there would be the uh, that that tie, that tie in with Hawaii. You know, It'd have uh, a uh, something that would resonate with people and something that would get people um, in into the idea that uh well you know we've quote unquote been attacked and then well, you could be even, somewhere even the prolifer even the proliferation of of the island of the you know island fascination um once you know after world war 2 after hawaii was attacked has to do with primarily with military because it's men returning, you know, um, it's men returning from the South seas. It's men returning from, uh, that area of the world. And they are the ones who had these experiences in that area of the world. And they're the ones who maintain this kind of fascination. And so, it's interesting too because the, the, this book, this Tiki Pop book, which uh, if this is something that interests uh, anybody, I definitely recommend that book, Tiki Pop, by uh, Sven Kirsten. Um, you see, the men were returning to a world that had completely and totally changed as well, an America that had changed because the America prior to World War Two uh, was something different than the. America after World War II, because as as we pointed out before, you have a massively industrialized, uh, mobilized country built for war, built for aerospace, um, building suburbs out of farm out of farms, 
Um, the old agricultural jobs that may have been available to people before that uh, were dwindling, and the aerospace jobs were much more appealing because they were modern and they were clean and they paid more money, especially for somebody returning from the military. But they also had to deal with the fact that there was this this change, and this book actually talks about how these guys who were returning from war uh, were actually adopted this island paradise thing to escape the suburban mundane life, whereas they might have had this kind of exciting experience in the South Seas and, you know, being out there and return back to a kind of mundane existence, which all the time, this this is the interesting part, the culture is telling you that you lead a mundane existence as well, and that the exotic is waiting for you in a trip to Java in Indonesia or something. That, that's the other thing is, is as you see this uh, tiki culture develop, which, like, like I said before, tiki is a amalgamation of all of the of all sorts of different stuff. I mean, it's not just Polynesia. It incorporates Easter Island and uh, uh, stuff from like pre pre Taiwan Taiwan when it was called Formosa. Um, uh, what's the, the you know Java in Indonesian islands and things like this. So there's all sorts of Southeast Asia influences involved in this. So it's not really anything at all. It's, it's a post modernist view of native culture, and that's very interesting too because like I said, the Metropolitan Museum of Art. Uh, the Rockefeller-run Metropolitan Museum of Art uh, was the one promoting this into modern art. And there was a, you know, after World War II, 1945-46, around there, there was a kind of uh, status attached to having native art if you were, like, kind of upper middle class and into, you know, into the art scene. And uh, a good example, a good example of this is uh, is a very strange movie uh, called Bell Book and Candle with Kim Novak and Jimmy Stewart. And uh, apparently, uh, this it revolves around. I know I've seen this movie, but it was really boring, and I fell asleep during it. So. Um, uh, it, it revolves around this lady who is like this native art collector. And then, you know, somehow she's like putting like kind of a witchcraft spell on Jimmy, Jimmy Stewart. It, it almost sounds kind of like a template for the show Bewitched as well. Um, but, but yeah, it introduces uh, American culture to the idea of the, of the like art collector who collects n- native art. And, um, and so, yeah, this became kind of a status thing to have these, you know, have primitive art. And like the book said, it's, it's a weird clash there because it's, it's modernism, but it's incorpor- it's incorporating primitivism at the same time. It's bizarre. Um, but I see how it works in hindsight. I, I understand what the appeal is. Um, but you, you have all of these, um, these different cultural things running through it where it's, it's like, well, we've got to progress with the modernism, but we've got to go back to the old ways 
with the nativism. And as we've talked about before, when you've got like kind of a, when you've got uh, this archaic revival appeal, it's it's lip service. Nobody's actually going to take you back. You're not going to be walking around in loincloths anytime soon. And you're not going to be carving, you know, tiki totems because you really worship some pagan god. It's because you're going to have a backyard barbecue with tiki torches. Yeah, it just adopts or co-ops certain elements of, you know, so-called primitive cultures. And then um, I think, too, it kind of it, it elicits ideas of sort of um, where, you know, at, going outside of uh, monogamous relationships and all that sort of where it's everything's kind of loose, kind of wild. And those things are associated with primitivism, I, I believe. I mean, that's the association that's made. I don't think that necessarily is a characteristic of so-called primitive cultures. Uh, it, but I think that is what is also communicated because, you know, they go around without, you got women going around without, um, with their breasts uncovered. That it's that, uh, simplistic as far as what it, what it evokes. It's not necessarily what that actually represents, but still, I think that is part of it. It's part of the uh, appeal and part of the suggestive nature of it. Oh, absolutely. And, and you know, that whole culture, you know, that's another thing is there's this kind of, you see at the same time, this kind of, you know, the, the I can't emphasize enough in these talks that we do about this stuff, the, the impact of Playboy and Hugh Hefner. And on on American culture and on the degeneration of of relationships between men and women, and so this this modern primitivism kind of goes hand in hand uh, with that as well, because you know they weren't making mai tais on the island of you know like in, in the islands you know back in primitive times. Right. They weren't having cocktail parties. Okay. Really? So, I so it's, That's a bummer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the uh, Mai Tai was created right here in good old Southern California at Don the Beachcomber. So, um, so these, so yeah, you, you see this stuff. And, and so once again, just to reiterate this, so nobody gets the wrong impression. This is not critical theory. This is not two Marxists sit around in, sitting around criticizing uh, American culture. It's looking at something objectively. I'm, I'm not saying that people were bad. I, I like tiki culture. I know. I know you do too, Chris. Mm -hmm, yeah. Um, but it's just looking at it for the cultural wallpaper and see, here's, here's another thing I wanted to point out is look at when it, you know, as, as, uh, not only America, not only the U S moved, um, but, but what the West in general moved into the South, into the South Pacific and later into Southeast Asia in the sixties, it only expanded the interest in the tiki phenomenon in the exotic phenomenon and so it's kind of this like 
this like fantasy land that that people get to slip into as the countries are moving into these other exotic areas with these people and and civilizing them their their you know uncivilized ways or whatever uh, and taking them over with with war and whatnot and then bam it just drops and cuts off right at the same time as the Vietnam War ends which for the most part that was pretty much the end of the Southeast Asia South Pacific conquest mm-hmm. and the, yeah. the the death of Tiki and Polynesian interest in American culture and in the world abroad I mean they had Valley High restaurant in, in Montreal, Quebec. <laughs> uh-huh. You know, they had they had uh, tiki bowling alleys in, you know, Ohio. Yeah. You know, as far away from the beach as you can get. So it so it had expanded everywhere and it was very popular and then bam just got cut off just after, you know, after Vietnam War ends, boom. No more interest in in tiki. It kind of just petered off, and the remnants of it was enjoyed by uh, in the early '80s by people like myself who would. Uh, I remember getting to go swimming at some somebody who lived in these apartments that looked like uh, a Tahitian village, and thought it was like the coolest thing ever. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's like uh, it's a really uh, appealing uh, aesthetic, you know. It's it's. I mean, to me, I mean, I it. And then um, it it uh, yeah, it, it's it's different. It stand. It's something that uh, if you're like say going out uh, to a club or something like that, you go into something that's got a completely different atmosphere, and then it it. You know, the thing about, um, yeah, there's a real good article that uh, uh, a listener posted on the blog. And uh, I should bring that up. But it's about um, how uh, spaces, like if you live in an urban environment or you live in your particular environments that are created, I mean, they have like a really profound effect on the individual insofar as how you conduct your life, you know, and, um, and and I don't think that is something that, um, I mean, it's something that people generally take for granted, you know, it's something that, uh, it's sort of like just there, you know, the space that you inhabit in your daily life, but what it all communicates to you is, you know, it's a type of language that is, you know, you're, you're, and you are, are, your behavior has a lot to do with the type of space that you inhabit, you know? So when, you know, we're talking about these things, it's, it's a form of uh, communication that I think that gets overlooked, but um, yeah. What, what does it, uh, what do those things express and what are, what kind of sentiments are trying to be developed in the, uh, in the, typical uh you know civilian or, or whatever you want to call it, you know yeah and you see the men who went to war in the pacific 
they were raised with the South Sea myths of fair maidens and beach life. And uh, the media perpetuated the idea of those myths uh, throughout war. The other one I wanted to bring up was uh, James Michener's book, The South Sea Tales, and later his book, Hawaii. And so you've got this guy, um, he's got an interesting story, he might be somebody interesting to look into. Um, but he was, you know, raised to godlike status amongst uh, the popu- you know, the popular literature with his South Sea tales. And he was a guy who was actually in the war, um, but didn't actually engage in any combat. And I guess he spent his whole duration of the war, like writing these tales, right? And his book of South Sea Tales was turned into something that I absolutely abhor and hope I never hear or watch again, because as a kid, I could not stand going over to my grandma's house and watching South Pacific, Uh (laughs) The, the, the musical. It made me want to drown myself in the waters of the South Pacific. Uh, I already I already don't like musicals and Broadway stuff. Um, there's jazz interpretations of show tunes are appealing to me, but not the music of South Pacific just makes me cringe every time I I've heard it. But there's a there's a particular song, and you have to understand that in the '50s and early part of the '60s, America was saturated in South Pacific. Okay, like South Pacific was mega huge. It was not only mega huge, it was mega huge because people from the war era identified with it because of the storyline that went along with it. And so there's this identification with it, you know, wins tons of awards and everything else. It becomes the biggest thing ever. And it was, you know, I, I wasn't alive then, but apparently it was a big deal. I mean, I can go into any thrift store and find, you know, in in every thrift store it has a copy of the South Pacific soundtrack. It's everywhere. And apparently it was, and it was beloved by all from that generation. And there's an interesting song from there called Valley High. And this, uh, I'm quoting from the book, it said, uh, Valley High had a hypnotic effect on the American psyche, suggestively conveying the promise that everyone could find their own special island where one would realize one's own special hopes, own special dreams, where the sky meets the sea, come to me. That's the lyrics of the song. And so it's interesting that that he would put that in the book, that it had this hypnotic effect on that particular generation, that it also kind of coincides with, um, with the organ, with the, uh, organization man coming into vogue that if you know these guys are gonna these uh john wayne types they're gonna come back and when they busted their when they busted their ass for good old uncle sam now they were gonna come back and bust their ass and work their tails off to achieve that island in the sun yeah yeah it's a form of uh escapism you know yeah, escapism and also kind of a motivation method 
it's got, it's got this motive, you know, this motivation for the man who has to come back and take care of business. And so once again, I just want to point this out that I'm not knocking uh, the men of that particular generation or mocking anybody who's motivated to do something. What I'm just saying is, is that there are tactics and tricks that are always used on people uh, in culture in general to motivate them to a, a specific ends. And see, the modern businessman did not exist in the form that he does after World War II, just like today. He's the the corporate the corporate man did not exist in the modern sense of the word, and so those guys who all came back, well, they were motivated to work for large. Like we pointed out in the aerospace talks, is uh, instead of being an engineer who would go on to start his own business, well, you got the big money, you got the, you got the promise of the, of the of the nice suburban house, you get to work at the nice government facility, and those people who would have started their own businesses or been their own, uh, you know, their own bosses or something, uh, ended up going into government work. Mm -hmm. Well, it reminds me of like, you know, Norse mythology about Valhalla and the Vikings would, or the, Warriors would have this notion, and it's kind of the same type of uh, idea of like what people will bring up about uh, Muslims, you know. So you 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 do good in battle, you fight to the death, you or you know for your reward for being a uh, good soldier is to go to a place of you know like a paradise, some kind of future place of you know reward. And that's, I was trying to think of too, it's also in, uh, like if you've, um, uh, like the Romans had a similar, but I I don't know what exactly they call it. It it was the same type of, uh, idea. Uh, what did they call it? I can't recall. Um, but it was, um, a similar concept. Like, uh, yeah, if you die in battle, you go to, uh, like a paradise and that was, that's a, that's, I think that's a pretty much a standard type thing. So I don't know, like, if, uh, you know, this idea of this, like, island paradise, uh, like you just got through describing, like, that, that, that idea that, oh, that there's a, there's a, a possibility of potential that, you know, you go there to retire or live or visit or what have you, sort of as something to fight for or look forward to or, uh, uh, have that as an ideal. Exactly. Yeah, that's a, that's a great point. I, I definitely agree with that. And so like and, the uh, Kiki culture would be a way of have the iconography kind of uh, surrounding you in your environment as a reminder of that, just kind of like the old, uh, uh, you know, idols and stuff. From that would be evocative of that idea that uh, you know Roman soldiers or Vikings or anything would be uh, familiar with. Absolutely, absolutely, I, I definitely agree with that. Well, I mean, we know you and I—we've talked about this before in, in different sequences. 
um, and different topics is that when you become immersed in something, when you become saturated in something within the culture, it's, it's manifest. You're, you're manifesting that, that approach to life. And this could be either a good thing or a bad thing, but you're, you're manifesting that approach to life with that surrounding, uh, reminding you of everything, like you just said. And so, so I think that's the point of, of the entire scope of from the you know late nineteen uh, the late eighteenth uh, century all the way up to the end of the Vietnam War is you had this background of 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 island paradise and the adoration for that as these countries moved through those regions those countries themselves had an adoration for those cultures and the um, cultures themselves back back home, you know, like in, in America, um, you, you tend to think that when you're coming into an area, like that you're going to help them out. You know the pe- the people the people back home obviously not the people running the show but the people back home you you always think you're doing good I mean even people uh, when we were going into the war in Iraq everybody thinks uh, oh yeah we're going we're going there to help the Iraqis that's how you get tricked into it it's always the good intention of the hero who's coming to save the day so y- yes I love I love island culture I love I love uh, Hawaii in fact. Um, the best thing that ever happened to Hawaii was Pearl Harbor because then America got to come in and uh, take it over, and now it's safe. It was kind of like that thing that I told you one time that some that an old uh, Korean War veteran said to me. He said, "He said the best thing that ever happened to the Japanese was Hiroshima and Nagasaki um, because when when." We became allies with Japan after the war. What did we do? We we came in there and built everything for them. Right. <laughs> he, he thought that was a good thing. Yeah. Well, yeah. The, so. Yeah, re re yeah, so, uh, tooling, retooling their uh, culture, their environment, their uh, surroundings, and uh, yeah. Great, but our, ours is all our, ours is always the better one. You see, it's always the better one. We've always we've we've got better stuff. We've got better things. You know, I mean, those guys on the islands. I mean, they're using, you know, at the time they're using, you know, a a broken conch shell tied to a bamboo stick for a shovel. When I could give them a real shovel, even though that's worked good for for three hundred years, that same exact shovel worked great for them. But my shovel's better. Yeah, I talked about that before where uh, there was an account. Somebody was, uh, I think this guy was um, uh, studying, you know, you know, primitive cultures was out, I think in the Amazon or somewhere and was uh, kind of took up with a, with a Amazon tribe for, for a period of time and then got you know, familiar with them. And then like he brought them a gift of some axes, you know, because they were using their, traditional you know primitive axes that they made themselves and then he returned years later and he noticed like oh they never used my axes i gave them 
and he asked them why and he said uh well you know we we have these axes and you know if we use those axes they they wear out and we can't get more but if we use our axes we can always have axes you know it's like they understood that they didn't want it to be dependent on that but that is the process of you know quote unquote civilizing people is to have them and that's i think when you understand that you understand what civilization is actually about it's this uh creation of you know interdependency so that you are uh wholly dependent upon the the the, the system that surrounds you you know you're you're absolutely dependent on it and you have no autonomy within that system you you are uh by rights a slave to it once you're in uh in the you know so-called civilization right another thing that's interesting too and um we'll shut her down after this uh the evolution in in the primitive taste was initiated in the early part of the 20th century by the first generation of modern artists in europe picasso and contemporaries in paris inspired by african and oceanic tribal sculpture they saw it as proof that there was more to artistic expression than naturalism and true to nature portraiture Leader of the Surrealists, André Breton, wrote a poem called Tiki. Guy Brook in Berlin proclaimed their right and duty to apply the subjective and the spiritual forces in native carvings to their own, and the Nazis called it degenerative. Interestingly enough, guess who invited them all to come over to the U.S.? Well, that was Peggy Guggenheim. And if you know anything about the Guggenheim Foundation... And art, it's definitely in there, up there with the intelligence agencies uh, proliferating modern art. So modern modern primitivism was used as a cultural shifter as well to shift away. Like I said, it 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 was it was also used against American culture, the old American culture, to make it feel mundane and and normal um, and lifeless, like. Uh, oh, you guys don't have anything going on because you're not as cool and, and it, as exotic and foreign as these other cultures, right? These guys had it down back then. They've got it cool. And, you know, to a certain extent, that is true. But it's being used in a way to change culture, to shift it away from the previous one. And I think we've uh, talked about that many times. Another interesting one was the um, Thor Heyerdahl's Kantiki uh, voyage. You remember that movie, uh, Chris, right? The uh, I don't know, I don't know if I'm familiar with that one. What Contiki uh, the, the boat where the guy sailed from South America to I think it's Tahiti to prove that the Mayans were actually the islanders and that they could make it on a bamboo raft. No, I don't know if I've seen that. Um, no, that sounds interesting. So that uh, was like a document. He documented it as a documentary film. Yeah, it came out in the fifties, and it, it generated it generated more interest in the tiki. Um, that's that's actually where the the that's actually where the um, the phrase tiki kind of caught on from in the general mainstream was from that movie Con Tiki, Thor hired all. 
Um, he's the one who also went to Easter Island and um, helped the people dig the big Easter Island heads out of the out of the sand. Um, and just the one more thing I wanted to point out was uh, the interesting thing in pop culture having to do with the idea of islands and um, of course Gilligan's Island. Um, there was also a show with Ernest Borgnine called McHale's Navy. Of course, Hawaii Five-O. Before Hawaii Five-O, there was Hawaiian Eye. Um, the, there was the, the Disney movies like uh, Swiss Family Robinson, and there was another movie with Dick Van Dyke, which I, I, I loved this movie when I was a kid. This was, this was like the ideal thing was uh, Robinson Crusoe U.S. Navy. Remember, did you ever see that film? Where Dick Van Dyke crashes a na- uh, plane onto a uh, onto a desert island and finds a tribe full of of uh, beautiful women living on the island, and they <laughs> think he's the king. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, no, I yeah, I remember like Robinson, <laughs> Robinson Crusoe was uh, very popular, and then they had a series of movies of. Uh, uh, what what they, what they called it? The, it was, oh, Swiss Family Robinson. You know, you heard of that? And that was an yeah, yeah. film. I don't know. I guess Gilligan's Island would be later, but you still have that. And then, uh, um, yeah, a lot of that uh, in in movies and uh, popularizing the that that whole thing. Uh, yeah, the word I was trying to think of earlier is Elysium. That was the uh, concept of paradise to the to the ancient romans and then oh the, yeah the, the elysian fields yeah yeah and uh it's interesting if you type in elysian and elysium in uh hawaii there is uh different associations with it at, at tying tying those two together yeah so uh, that's confirmation of what i've said earlier but um it's still interesting absolutely well I'm going to head off to my own island paradise. Your personal sushi lounge and your Mai Tai my, is waiting for you. My Mai, my mai Tai is waiting with an umbrella in it and in a co- in, poured into a coconut. And nice. I don't know if there's going to be a whole stuffed pig waiting for me. I, I'm, I doubt that, but... Um, <laughs> Wow. One day, one day. Yeah, dig a pit and get some uh, what banana leaves. You're good to go. Yeah, and if there's there's a woman in a grass skirt waiting for me, I'm sure my wife will throw her out. <laughs> <laughs> so, but yeah, I, this was an interesting talk. I thank you for entertaining uh, the idea, and um, I will do another special report uh, in the future on stuff that we think is interesting and worth pointing out in a special manner. Uh, Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I guess, yeah. And I guess, uh, I think we'll take, we'll, I think we'll uh, take it out with some appropriate music.
This has been an HBC special report. I'm John Adams with Chris Kendall. Thanks for listening. Um, that's all. Thanks, everybody. Go back to your place. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.